We are in Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 1. That's page 941, if you're using a pew Bible this morning. Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 1. What then, shall we say, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, but also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law begins wrath, brings wrath, But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words... It was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. In recent weeks, I've been following a blog of a fellow pastor, which I think is enough removed from us that you won't know who I'm speaking of. And when I speak, I speak carefully because I've not walked in the shoes that he has walked in. But the shoes that he finds himself walking in is helping his wife deal with, unless the Lord intervenes, what will be terminal cancer. And he's walked this for a number of, of days now. And as I read that blog just recently and, and continued to follow it some, there was something that, that inside of me began to just say, this isn't quite right. There's something missing here. And as I continued to follow it, I 
I continue to ask that question. Why, why is my soul troubled here as I follow this? And I came to these conclusions, which sparked my not going on in the series, guarding the deposit this Sunday, but waiting till next Sunday, to insert as we come to the table this morning what I have from Romans chapter 4. What I found glaringly absent, and I say this carefully because I haven't read everything that has been written, and so I may have missed it. It may have been other places and I just didn't see it. But what I have read, there was a glaring um, absence of gospel promise in what is being written. There was talk of a generic talk about God, not that he wasn't affirmed in all of it. There was also talk about um, his working and trusting him in the circumstance, but primarily trusting him in in the areas of healing and some of those kinds of things. But it, it tended to be more of the temporal and not the eternal kind of thing. What troubles me and, and what it does for me is it reaffirms to me that, that I want to pastor a people who, who understand and recognize those kinds of absences. That not, not to be critical, not to do anything more than pray, really, but to, to realize that, that in those circumstances there has to be, there has to be a presence of gospel promise. There has to be a sense of the eternal in the midst of dealing with some incredibly hard temporal kinds of things. There must be. Now, not in a flippant kind of way, not in a way that is almost trite um, and just kind of painted on. Uh, we don't want that, that we're living in the, in the future and don't realize that the present is, is where we live, really. Um, and, and it's broken and it's difficult. But, but there has to be a sense of gospel promise for us. And I want that to be who we are. And, and I, I can describe this best as that there must be a sense that we awake most mornings with gospel promise in our minds. My, con- my conclusion is you will not, when you come to those kinds of times, live with gospel promise if you don't live with gospel promise regularly in your life. If you don't wake up lots of mornings with gospel promise on your mind, not every morning, and, and some of us mornings are harder than others. So I want to be careful to not paint a picture that is not reality. But at the same time, gospel promise must be a central part of our lives. As, as, excuse me, as Christians. It must be central in our lives. We must wake often, I think, hearing those promises. We must hear them throughout the day, what this table represents to us. Now, I picked the, the text that I picked this morning because this is about gospel promise. These are the kinds of things that I hope come to our minds. A, a picture of what needs to come. And they can come from lots of different places in Scripture. In fact, as we went through Advent, we picked three or four of those places. Uh, the, the, the idea that Jesus came to die is, is gospel promise. I mean, He came specifically to die as a man. That's why He came as a man, fully man, to die as a man. That's gospel promise. 
I hope those things come to your mind in different places from different texts. But this morning I picked this text. Um, and I want us to look at this text a bit. And I want to, to talk about the life of Abraham. Um, it's, it's interesting. If you go back, I, I'd like you to turn back with me to, to Jeremiah chapter 32 for a minute if you have your Bibles. This is the promise of the new covenant. The promise of which this table represents to us today. And in that promise, in chapter 32 of Jeremiah, 31 and 32, you, you get that promise portrayed um, to us. But one of the things it says in chapter 32, in verse 17, and then it says it, it, says it in verse uh, 17, and then it goes down a little later and says it again in verse 27. But this particular statement, nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is too hard for my God. That, that promise is a gospel promise primarily. Now, it's certainly true that nothing is too hard for God. God can do anything. He's God. But the foundation of that promise is gospel promise. It is most true in regards to the gospel, that nothing is too hard for God. And ultimately, that promise is best applied when it comes to saving you and I. In other words, it's not too hard for God to do that. And it is, it is a hard thing. I mean, the implication is hard to save us. Do we, do we think that way? Do we think of that promise in that context? Nothing is too hard for God? Or do we think it's no big deal? We've been around it. We need to realize it is a big deal. Nothing is too hard for God. And the reason it's in that context is because what we read down, if you go down to verse 38 of Jeremiah, this is, this is what's not too hard for God to do. Listen, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way and they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn from doing them good or doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may turn, not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And he says, I will do it with all my heart and soul. That's the promise of the new covenant. That God will take our hearts and do that. And the context is, that's not too hard for God to do. It, it's a big chore, but it's not too hard for God. And the reason it's a big chore is because of our hearts. Now, the context of what we read in Romans chapter 4 is, is this. And this is how we apply chapter 4 to, to where I went in Jeremiah. Abraham was promised to be the father of many nations. But his wife Sarah was barren. She was beyond the age of childbearing. And Abraham was old. And in... in in the, in the sense of all of that that I've just said, it was an impossibility. He had, they had both gone beyond the age of child-rearing and child-bearing. It was an impossibility. But the inference of chapter 4 is God can do it. God can do it. And Abraham believed God could do it. And that very belief is the basis on which God counted Abraham 
righteous because he believed God. He had hope against hope, the scripture says. Now, the application is for us now that nothing is too hard for God. And the inference of this, of this whole chapter is God can save a people. God can save them. It's not too hard for God to do it. Again, I come back to you to say, I think sometimes we, we just run over that. We, we, don't, we don't realize that that promise is about salvation. Now, look at why it's difficult. What I want to do is look at why it, it should appear to us as an impossibility. Just like him, Abraham having a son should appear to him as an impossibility, but God had promised it. God saving you and saving me should appear as an impossibility. There should be a place in your life where there's no way God can do that. There's no way He can take a heart like mine and do what He promised in the promise of the new covenant. If you've never thought that way, you need to. If you've never thought that way, the glory of the gospel is not as glorious as it ought to be to you. There should be a place in your life, a time in your life, probably regular times in your life, when you think, oh God, this is an impossibility. My heart is an impossibility. As you look at your heart. Now, let me tell you the reasons why from this text. Why, why you should see it as hopeless in one sense. And, and how you begin to understand what it says in verse 18, in hope he believed against hope. The against hope part for our hearts are these three things. First of all, the scripture says that God justifies the ungodly. Look at verse 5. And the one who does not work but trusts him, trust God, who justifies the ungodly. You will not understand the impossibility of that until you really deal with the ungodliness of your own heart. Do you really believe, if you are a Christian today, that God saved you, the ungodly? He justifies the ungodly. Or do you think you kind of cleaned it up a little bit so that it wasn't as ungodly as this text says it was ungodly. In other words, you contributed a little bit to God recognizing this and doing His work. Subtly and subconsciously sometimes I think we don't realize the Scripture says He justified the ungodly. If you are a Christian today, you are a Christian because at one time you were ungodly, absolutely ungodly, No, none righteous. No, not one, it says in Romans chapter 3. And God justified you when you were still ungodly. You didn't become a little godly so God could justify you. He justifies the ungodly. Let that sink in on you a bit. It's so important that we do that. We want to hold on to some glimmer I think, of of godliness is why God moved toward us. And the scripture does not teach that. That's why nothing is impossible to God. Why that applies to salvation. God can save even the ungodly. If he couldn't, you wouldn't be saved. 
and neither would I. The second thing, he counts righteous, counts as righteous those who are still sinful. If you're a Christian today, there came a moment in time when God reckoned you righteous while you were still sinful. That applies to all of us. In fact, you're still sinful. All of you in this room. Whether you recognize it or not, you still are. And if you're a Christian, God reckons you righteous even though you are still sinful. You still sin. It should just cry to us. That's impossible. How can God do that? How can He do that? How can He reckon us righteous? Now, do you understand what reckon righteous, count righteous means? It, it means that another righteousness is provided for us. An alien righteousness. The, the righteousness that Christ accomplished outside of us some 2,000 years ago on the cross. He fulfilled all righteousness. He, he didn't just die. He lived a perfect life. So that he could provide a righteousness. We, read, we, we sang about it this morning. Clothed in righteousness divine. If you're a Christian today, you are clothed in righteousness divine, but it's not yours, it's his. He drapes you with it. That's what Charles Wesley meant. But he does it. Even, even as you still sin. You are accounted righteous even though you continue to sin. You are seen as righteous by God, the Father, when you're not. That, that, should, just, that should just ring to us as impossible. How can it be that I can be declared righteous and yet be unrighteous at one level at the same time? That's what the scripture says. Abraham was counted righteous. Look at what it says in verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And that's why we have the story of Abraham. He, he was righteous even when he wasn't righteous. Because of the righteousness of another. You see the impossibility, how that should appear to be an impossibility to us? Nothing is impossible to God that He, first of all, can save the ungodly and secondly, can count righteous someone who is not righteous and yet continue to be just Himself. And then thirdly, He rejoices to do good to us. That should seem like an impossibility. How can this God rejoice to do good to me? That's what we read in Jeremiah chapter 32. How can he rejoice to do good to one who doesn't always do good? Who still sins? How can he do that? How can he do that to one who spits in his face at times and continue to rejoice to do good to them and, and never, never bring judicial wrath upon them because it was all laid on his son? God rejoices to do good to us. Always. It never wavers. You think about that in your own life. 
it should seem like an impossibility. It should seem like an absolute impossibility. Is that the way you see salvation? Nothing is too hard for him. My contention is that if you don't see it that way, that some things will happen in your life. There will be some fruit in your life that is not very good and not very helpful. If you don't see that as impossible on one level, and, and you do what it says here, in hope he believed against hope. That's really what I think it's saying there. In hope Abraham trusted the promise of God when everything in him cried, this is impossible. You must have times in your life as you mature that you, you, you hold on to the promise that I'm saved because I'm counted righteous. But at the same time, everything in you cries. This, this just is not possible. How can this be? And can it be? We sang it. And can it be that I can be counted righteous while I am not absolutely righteous? Do you see what I'm saying? Does that make sense to you? Does that seem ever like an impossibility to you on one level? So it, 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 you hold on to the promise. You hold on to the promise that it is this way. He justifies the ungodly, of which I am and was. He counts righteous one who is not absolutely righteous, of whom I am. And he rejoices to do good to me, even when I don't always do good to him. I hold on to that hope. I fight for that hope. I rest in that hope, even when it seems an impossibility that it could be true. I hope you have that tension because if, if you live in that tension, these things will not happen to you. But if you don't, you're probably living with this kind of fruit. If, if you don't see that, if you don't rest in hope even when everything cries otherwise and you don't see that kind of tension happening, this is the kind of fruit that it will produce in your life. Um, if, you, if you get the idea that, that I, am, I, am, uh, I am saved by my performance, uh, it will create a yo-yo kind of relationship for you. You will either, you either fluctuate in self-righteousness or despair. You, you, will, you will gravitate to one or the other and maybe both at times, at various times. You, you will overestimate your performance and so you'll live in self-righteousness and the days when you do well, you'll pray well out of self-righteousness and the days when you do, don't do so well, you will despair and you'll run from God. It becomes a yo-yo. Self-righteousness, despair. When I, when I live in self-righteousness, I will pray well. When I don't live there, I will despair and not pray at all and you will be up and down in your prayer life. If you have an up and down prayer life, it may be that you're not living in hope against hope. You're not hanging on to the promises of God as you need to. You're not seeing this. That you will fluctuate up and down, in and out. To pray, and the reason we pray is because we are counted righteous even when we're not righteous. We are counted righteous. We are declared righteous. 
we are acceptable and able to come to God because of that righteousness, His righteousness. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That He accounts one righteous that isn't. The second thing that will happen to you is that circumstances will dictate. If you don't, if you don't live with that, if you don't see what we're talking about here, circumstances will dictate your life. You'll be driven by circumstance. You, you, your emotions will be driven by circumstance, by, by how things are going. If things are going well, you'll do okay. But if things are not going well, the bottom will fall out. You will either, you will either think God likes you or you will think he's not treating you very well. And it will all depend on circumstances. There will be nothing in your life to know what we talked about when we sang this song um, today at our prayer time, that, that the, bid may, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. There will be nothing of that in your life, because when it has a bitter taste, you're, you're angry at God. You don't see God as being for you. You think He's against you. But then you do some good things and He gets in your favor again and things go well. And again, it's a yo-yo kind of experience. The whole idea that God rejoices to do good to you, even when, when circumstances, when there's a frowning providence, a frowning circumstance, and being able to, to believe in hope against hope, when all of the circumstances say God is against me, to hold on that He's not against me, that He's working in ways that I can't see, and he's for me and not against me, that, that won't have any reality to you. You won't understand that very well. You won't function at that level. And the third thing that you won't do very well, you won't have, is what another person called gutsy guilt. Gutsy guilt. I want to take you to this. I, I did this in my Sunday school class a while back, but I want you to go to Micah chapter 7. I want you to see this, particularly if you're not in my Sunday school class. Micah chapter 7. Verses 8 and 9. You, you won't understand what it is to have gutsy guilt and how to live with gutsy guilt. Um, this is an incredibly important passage, I think, for us to see because in the heart of it is the gospel. In the heart of it is one who understands what it means to believe in hope against hope, to believe that nothing is impossible to God, that He can, he can take my heart sinful though it may be at times, and count it righteous and work in it. Um, look at this verse. This is, this is Micah, the prophet Micah, saying this. Rejoice not over me, O my soul. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be light to me. And then he says, I bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. This is an example of a person who understands that he's accounted righteous and yet he continues to be sinful in areas of his life. And he continues at times to sin even though God continues to count him righteous by the righteousness of Christ. And it's the whole idea of when we do sin, there's a sense sometimes when, when we sin and darkness comes over our soul, we sense that we just have, we've just have failed God, uh, we've disobeyed Him, we've displeased Him at one level, and yet He's still pleased. That's what this text is talking about. At one level, God is pleased, 
He's pleased with us because of the righteousness of Christ, but He's displeased with us about how we're doing. That's the situation here. He's, he's pleased, perfectly pleased. The basis of that perfect pleasure is how we can come to Him, how we can know that we will be ultimately be saved. And at the same time, He's displeased because we have sinned and, and, and we continue to sin. And, and so a cloud comes over us. And the darkness comes over us that God allows to come. But that darkness does not mean we're separated. It's just a darkness that comes. We, we still have access by the righteousness of Christ. And, and what we should do is run to God in that circumstance. We should run to Him. And that's exactly what, what He does here, the prophet does. He says this, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, speaking to Satan. Rejoice not over me, enemy of my soul. When I fall, when I sin, I shall rise again. Though for right now, I bear the indignation of the Lord. I, I bear at one level the displeasure of the Lord. At the other level, the pleasure of the Lord is my hope. Because it says here, Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for it, he will bring me to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. What is his vindication? He accounts righteous one who still is sinful. He justifies the ungodly. Folks, let that sink in. Let that sink in. He doesn't justify the godly. He justifies the ungodly. That's the good news of the gospel. Now, does he work with us? Does he deal with us? Does he work in our hearts? Yes, that's part of what Mike is talking about here. But always in the context of his acceptance by the perfect righteousness of Christ. By what this table represents to us. Which should give us gutsy guilt. That's, that's what one would call it. Gutsy guilt. Guilt that doesn't despair. But guilt that runs back to the Father. Because they realize that they have hope against hope. It, it seems circumstances should dictate that he would be angry. Circumstances that dictate that he would cut us off. Circumstances would dictate that he would, he would get frustrated with us and ultimately cast us away. That's what, that's what the against hope part is. The impossibility of him saving a person like that. But in hope, Abraham believed against hope. And that's actually what accounted him righteous. The very impossibility that he believed against. So for you, when, when you sin, what you have to do is you have to come against the, the temptation to see that I'm just never going to get it right. I'm just never going to get it right, God. You're not going to be able to save me. You have to fight against that because in hope... Against hope, run to Him because He has provided a way. It isn't impossible to Him. And in fact, He does it for all who believe He does it. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Do you believe God can save those that are impossible to save? That's the basis of the Gospel. That's what this table's about. That's what I hope you'll reflect on as you take these elements this morning.
I'd like for those to come that are going to help us distribute. Let's pray together. Father, help us this morning. Help us to be a people who awaken to these kinds of truths in the morning. Help us to be people who in hope believe against hope and trust you. Trust that you're a God of the impossible. The God who can take a heart like ours and save it and change it, Father, for your glory. Help us, Lord, to be strengthened at this table by the truths we've declared and the grace that flows from it. In Jesus' name.